Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast. I am so glad that you're here. I'm your host, Christine Worth. Before we begin today, I want to give a trigger warning. This story deals with the abuse of a developmentally disabled man. Listener discretion is advised. This is the story of Louis Buddy Musso, a kind-hearted, mentally challenged 59-year-old man who uprooted his life in New Jersey to move to Texas with a woman he believed was the love of his life, only to find out it was all a diabolical plan. On August 26, 1998, in Galena Park, Texas, a man was on his morning jog when he noticed what he thought was a man sleeping in a nearby ditch. He didn't think much of it at the time, but on his way back from his jog, the man was still in the same position. It didn't look like he'd moved at all. So the man called 911. When the police arrive, They find a man's body, beaten and bruised. The body was so heavily bruised that at first, officers thought it might have been a hit and run. The problem with this theory, though, was that the man was wearing clean clothing. The clothes didn't have any tears, any dirt, or any blood on them. One shoe was lying on the ground, and the other shoe was on the man's foot, but it was on the wrong foot. Officer Cates, one of the responding officers, believed that the body was not killed in this location, but rather was dumped there. The man didn't have any identification, so the officers called other departments to see if maybe they had any reports of a missing person. Now, upon calling the Jacinto City Police Department, they found that a woman named Suzanne Sue Basso had reported a man named Louis Buddy Musso missing. The police head over to Sue's apartment in Jacinto City to talk with her, but she had gone to the Jacinto City Police Department to give them Buddy's ID. She returned just a few minutes after the police had arrived at her home. The police learn that Buddy lives with Sue and her adult son, James O'Malley. She invites them into her apartment where they meet James and notice some bloody clothing and a bloody sheet near a cot on the living room floor. Sue said that Buddy slept on the cot and that the clothes were his. The police ask Sue and her son to come down with them to view the victim to see if they can identify him as Buddy. Upon arriving, the police park the car at a distance from the actual scene. Sue is too distraught to get out of the car, so instead James gets out and IDs the body. James, without any surprise, without any emotion, confirms that yes, it's Buddy. The police then take the both of them down to the police station to provide a written statement. What the police end up learning is horrific. About a year earlier, 59-year-old Louis Buddy Musso attended a church carnival in New Jersey. 
Even though Buddy has a developmental disability, he lives by himself in an assisted living facility. He has a job at a grocery store. He manages his own finances, and he is described as light-hearted, gentle, kind, lovable, and big-hearted. He likes to dress up like a cowboy, and loves country music. His developmental disability means that even at 59 years of age, he has the mental capacity of someone around seven to ten years old. Other residents of the facility were very protective of Buddy. He had always wanted to be a cowboy singer, and he would often entertain the group with his own renditions of country hits he had learned from the radio. One of his neighbors said, quote, "He was so affectionate. If you gave him a little bit of attention, he became very attached to you." While attending the church carnival, Buddy met a woman named Sue Basso. She is there visiting from Jacinto, Texas. It's a Houston suburb with about eleven thousand residents, and this is as of twenty twenty. Sue is the mother of two children. One of them, James, who has grown, still lives at home with her. Sue and Buddy seem to hit it off, and they end up spending a lot of time together while at the carnival. Sue shows Buddy attention and even some affection, although it's never really disclosed as to what type of affection. You know, this could have been a pat on the back or a kiss on the cheek, but whatever the case, Buddy believes that it is the key to a good relationship. Eventually, Sue had to go back to Texas, but after she had left, she kept in touch with Buddy. She continually asked him to move in with her. Every time he would get off of the phone with her, he would blush like a teenager and tell his friends all about his lady love. Jean and others at the facility were worried about the situation. Sue. Was grossly overweight and a good fifteen years younger than Buddy. They didn't know why she was so intent on having him move to the Houston area. Now, Sue, she was previously from New York, and she was the youngest girl in a family of eight children. While she was growing up, she was sexually and physically abused. Her uncle on her mother's side. Was Robert Garrow, a convicted serial rapist and spree killer, who police had shot during a prison escape? She had met and married James Peake, who was a Marine. She had two children with him: a son, which would be James, and a daughter. During their marriage, Sue was incredibly promiscuous. She would often take her children to meet up with men. According to her daughter, quote. My brother James and I were sitting at the kitchen table of a stranger's house while our mom was in the other room with a the man. Their son James had been beaten and abused by both of his parents. In court, he stated, quote, "That's how I learned self-defense. My father beat the shit out of me." James Peak ended up getting arrested in 1982 for molesting his daughter. And he spent eleven months in jail in North Carolina. Now, while he was in jail, the kids were actually sent into foster care, but later ended up with relatives.、Um, it is unknown. I could not find any information as to why they weren't just back with their mother, but nonetheless, this is what happened with them. It wasn't until the early nineties 
that Sue and her children actually reunited, and they reunited in Texas. Sue changed her last name and her son's last name to O'Malley and created an Irish-American persona for herself. It was later learned that Sue and her son James had a sexual relationship. She forced him to shoplift. She forced him to beg. She made him eat on the floor and would often lock him inside the house during the day, even going so far as to nail the windows shut. Now, Sue's job in Texas was as an apartment complex security guard. And during this time, she meets and becomes romantically involved with another man named Carmine Basso. Even though Sue was still married to James, she couldn't marry Carmine, but she nonetheless took his last name and even introduced him to others as her husband. Now, Carmine, he ran an investigative firm and had even received a Medal of Honor from serving in the Vietnam War. The whole reason that Sue was in New Jersey, where she met Buddy in the first place, was because she supposedly went there to meet Carmine's parents, even though Carmine wasn't even with her. Now, it wasn't too long after Carmine and Suzanne had gotten together that Carmine ended up dead in his office. Apparently of an acute issue with acid reflux. Now, this was ruled death by natural causes, but the timeline differs as to whether Carmine died while Sue was in New Jersey or if she was back in Houston around the time of his death. Regardless, though, Suzanne Sue Peak slash Basso was now left without any kind of steady income. So here she's making all these phone calls to Buddy. And after all of these calls from Sue to Buddy, Buddy starts to ship what little he owns to Sue's home in Jacinto City. He even used his social security check to purchase a cheap engagement ring and a new set of clothes, country western clothes, a new hat and a new shirt and even new boots specifically for the trip. On June 14th, 1998, Buddy leaves New Jersey to start a new life with Sue in Texas. He bought his ticket for a Greyhound bus and was sure to wear his brand new outfit that he had just bought. Now, when he got there, Buddy realized that it wasn't just Sue who lived in her home. It was also her grown son, James. And there were also frequent visitors nearly every day and night who were Sue's friends. There was Bernice Ahrens, a woman who's slightly older than Sue, Bernice's daughter, Hope, Hope's boyfriend, Terrence, and Bernice's son, Craig. Now, eight days after arriving in Texas, Sue had Buddy sign a last will and testament, which would leave Buddy's property and insurance benefits to Sue. Sue's friend Bernice, Sue's son James, and Hope's boyfriend Terrence all signed this document as witnesses. Now, a friend of Buddy's named Al Becker, and he's been his friend for 20 years, and he's also his Social Security representative. He tries to contact Buddy after he left, 
Al would call numerous times and Suzanne, Sue, would answer the phone each time. Eventually, she wouldn't even let Al talk with Buddy. Now, Al started to become concerned for his friend, and rightly so, and contacted several agencies in Texas that he thought could help him, but he could never get any information about Buddy. In July, just a few weeks later, Sue tried, unsuccessfully, I might add, to designate herself as a representative payee of Buddy's Social Security benefits. She also had created a life insurance form for Buddy, describing herself as Buddy's, quote, wife-to-be, and named herself as beneficiary. Now, during the time that Buddy was at Sue's, he was frequently handcuffed, sometimes at home, sometimes in the back seat of the car, while the rest of the group, Sue, Bernice, Hope, Craig, and Terrence, all enjoyed a meal at a restaurant. Within Sue's apartment, she had set up a mat of sorts for Buddy. Buddy was forced to kneel on this mat, and he was denied food and water. When he cried out, which he did frequently, he was beaten for doing that. He wasn't allowed to use the restroom and, after wetting himself, would be beaten again. If Buddy tried to stand or lie down, he'd be punished. In early August, one of Sue's neighbors ran into Buddy and noticed that he had a black eye and he had some facial bruising. She asked him if he wanted her to call an ambulance or the police, and he said, No, you call anybody and she'll just beat me up again. On August 21st, 1998, Sue had to go into work, but she didn't want to leave Buddy in the care of just James alone. So instead, she took Buddy over to Bernice's apartment because she knew that more people would be there to watch Buddy. At the time, Buddy had two black eyes and several cuts to the back of his head. Within Bernice's apartment, Buddy was made to sit all day and all night on his knees on a red and blue mat. You know, one of those mats that are similar to those interlocking mats that are used by children. And he was made to do this in the hallway. He had to sit with his hands on the back of his neck. On August 22nd, now this is just a day after he was taken in or taken to Bernice's apartment, a Houston police officer responded to a report of an assault. Three men were in a field near Bernice's apartment. Two of the men were making an older man run, quote, military style in the field. The two men were Sue Basso's son, James, and Hope's boyfriend, Terrence, and the older man was, of course, Buddy. The officer called Buddy over, and Buddy stated that he didn't want to run anymore. The officer also noticed that Buddy had two black eyes, quote, the worst I've ever seen in my career. When the officer asked about his black eyes, Buddy said that he'd been beaten by three Hispanics and refused medical treatment. So what the officer did is he took all three of them to Bernice's apartment where they find Sue Basso. Sue tells the officer that she's Buddy's legal guardian. She scolds James for making Buddy run and comforts Buddy in front of the officer. 
Now, even though the officer had doubts, he left Buddy in the care of Sue. From the 21st, August 21st, until August 25th, Sue, Bernice, and James all went out to eat at least twice. Each time Buddy was taken along, but he was left in the car, handcuffed. At one time, when Bernice had gotten back to the apartment after she got home from work, Bernice noticed all kinds of blood on the walls of her apartment. She asked her son Craig about it, and Craig told her that Buddy had been beaten. Buddy pleaded to be taken to a hospital because he didn't feel well. During this brief time, Buddy had been subjected to several beatings, including being hit with a belt, baseball bats, hands, fists, feet. He was kicked with boots and hit with other hard objects. The night of August 25th, 1998, Buddy died in Bernice's apartment just over two months after he had arrived in Texas. So once the police have Sue and James identify the body that was found alongside the road and they bring them into the station to make a written statement. They're placed in separate rooms. Now, at this point, they're not considered suspects. Sue was beside herself and often went into hysterics, claiming that she believes Buddy went and met with some Mexican women. James is telling a similar story. The problem is, is that from the distance and the position that James had viewed the body, there is no way he could have instantly identified who the body belonged to without moving to a different angle or coming closer to the scene. So the officer calls him out on this. Almost instantly, James begins to tell the truth. He says they didn't mean to kill him. He tells the police exactly what they did to Buddy, and even the seasoned police officers were shocked when they heard of the brutality that had been inflicted on Buddy. James then provides all of the details and names of all of the people involved, including Bernice, Hope, Craig, and Terrence. He further tells police that they can find evidence in a dumpster, The police locate the dumpster where they find a garbage bag. And in the garbage bag, they find Buddy's blood-stained clothing that was worn by Buddy at the time of his death, plastic gloves, blood-stained towels, and used razors. Once the police have the names of everyone involved, they head to Bernice's apartment. When she answers the door, they ask if she knew why they were there. She replies, quote, this is about Buddy, isn't it? Bernice agreed to have her apartment and her car searched. During the search, police found handcuffs, a wooden baseball bat, an aluminum bat, and pieces of carpet that had bloodstains on them. Within Bernice's car, they take the carpet from her trunk. All four of them, Bernice, Craig, Hope, and Terrence, are arrested. Bernice and Craig waive their rights and decide to give a statement about Buddy's murder. Bernice told the police, quote, 
Sue said we had to make a pact that we can't say anything about what happened. She said if we get mad at each other, we can't say anything. Terrence admitted to kicking Buddy and hitting him with a baseball bat. He said, quote, The blows that killed Buddy are the blows of Sue hitting him with the vacuum and James constantly kicking him in the back of the head. I know he didn't die from us hitting him because he had been up and responsive. Hope refused to give a statement until she was given a meal. Once officials provided her with some food, she said she didn't know how to read or write, so instead she provided an oral statement, which they then wrote out for her. When she was done, the police read the statement back to her to be sure it was all correct and that she agreed with every word. She barely listened and instead just requested more food. Sue, knowing now that James has confessed, provides a written statement. In the statement, she said that she knew her son and friends had beaten and abused Buddy for at least a full day before he died. She did admit to beating Buddy herself and driving the car that belonged to Bernice with Buddy's body in the trunk. She said they drove to a place, the place where he was found, and her son James, Bernice's son Craig, and Hope's boyfriend Terrence all grabbed the body and dumped it alongside the road. Sue then said she drove the car to a dumpster where they tossed the rest of the evidence that was in that garbage bag. Within Sue's apartment, they find insurance policies in Buddy's name, including one that provided for a payment of $65,000 in the event that Buddy died of a violent crime. They also found a last will and testament which said that all of Buddy's entire estate was to go to Sue and, quote, no one else was to get a cent. Testing of the evidence that they gathered, uh, the carpet and the bats and so forth, found that there was blood on the carpet taken from the hallway of Bernice's apartment, blood and hair on the wooden bat, and blood on the aluminum bat. There was also blood on Bernice's bumper of her car and blood on most of the items contained in the garbage bag that was recovered from the dumpster. It was revealed at trial that, and this is so heartbreaking, that in Buddy's pocket, there was a note that said, quote, Sue and her son hit me. I want to come back to New Jersey. I need money for Greyhound. At trial, testimony also revealed that in the two short months that Buddy had been in Texas, he'd lost about 25 to 30 pounds. The medical examiner, who had to refer to a seven-page autopsy report, said that Buddy had 14 broken ribs, two dislocated vertebrae, a broken nose, a skull fracture, cigarette burn marks, and bruises resulting from blunt force trauma extending from the bottom of Buddy's feet all the way up his body, including his genitals, his eyes, and his ears. Blood was found in Buddy's mouth, 
and within his windpipe. There were so many bruises that the medical examiner couldn't even count them. There were bruises of different ages that had been inflicted on Buddy over a period of days, even weeks, leading up to his death. His back and his buttocks had lash marks, which indicated that he'd been whipped. He had a severely blackened eye that came from a hinge fracture to his skull, which was likely caused by a blow to the back of his head. He had 17 cuts on his head and some 30 cuts and cigarette burns on his back. He further noted that Buddy had skin abrasions that could be attributed to contact with a cleaning solution or a scrub brush. Now, Buddy ultimately died from a skull fracture caused by an unknown object which left a large X-shaped laceration on his scalp. He had suffered approximately 18 or 19 blows to his head. James testified that he was pressured by his mom, Sue, to take part in the killing. Quote, I didn't know what else to do. I was scared of my mother. He further said that he had dunked Buddy four or five times in a bathtub filled with household cleaning products and bleach. Sue poured alcohol over Buddy's head while James scrubbed him with a wire brush until he was bloody. Bernice and Craig admitted taking part in hitting Buddy, but said that Sue was the ringleader. Officer McCormick uh, testified in regards to taking Hope's statement where they had to write it for her because she couldn't read or write. Quote, her statement made me nauseous and sick. She was calm, fine, like nothing was wrong. I was so upset I wanted to vomit, but all she wanted was another meal. Now, Sue, at the time of her arrest, she actually weighed about 350 pounds. By the time her trial came around, uh, she was down to about 140 pounds. Before her trial, she insisted on having a wheelchair and began to complain that she had paralysis, she had chest pains, she had stomach pains, she had mental problems. She also said that she had regressed to her childhood, and she even at times spoke in a squeaky little girl voice. So, of course, they appointed a uh, court psychologist who made the determination that she was faking, and the trial judge agreed at a competency hearing that Sue was, in fact, capable of facing trial. Hope took the stand against Sue and said that she saw Sue beat Buddy with a belt, with her fists, and with a vacuum cleaner attachment. She also said that she would jump up and down on Buddy as he collapsed on the mat. Now, remember, Sue, at this time, she was estimated to have weighed about 350 pounds. Sue, Hope testified, also said she encouraged James to kick Buddy with his steel-toed boots. At one time, Buddy asked James to stop, so James stopped. When he did, Sue asked him why he stopped. Buddy was moaning when he went down. Then she hit him again on the back after she hit him on the groin. 
At some point, Buddy asked Sue to please call an ambulance, but she refused. When Sue had to go to work, she told James to watch the others to make sure they didn't leave the apartment or use the phone. When Buddy asked to get off the mat, James wouldn't let him. When Buddy tried, James hit him. Hope said that Buddy was moving very slowly and was obviously in a lot of pain. In the end, at the end of all of this, all six participants were charged with capital murder. James O'Malley, Sue's son, got life in prison. Bernice got 80 years. Her son, Craig, received 60 years. Terrence got life in prison and Hope received 20 years. Sue was the one that they wanted the most, and they wanted to make it a death penalty case. And they succeeded. Sue was convicted of capital murder, and during the penalty phase, Sue's own daughter relayed a miserable childhood. Her daughter said, quote, There was sexual abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, any kind of abuse she could inflict. Once Sue was sentenced to die, her daughter spoke with reporters. Quote, we got a victory. This is wonderful. Justice has finally been served. She's off the streets. She can't hurt anybody. Let the inmates kill her. I don't care. She was never a mother. She doesn't have any mothering instincts. She threw us away and left us out there to fend for ourselves. Now, let her do a little fending for herself. I might just sit at home and pop a bottle of champagne when the lethal injection is given. Sue is executed on February 5th, 2014. Before being put to death, the warden asked if she wanted to make a final statement, and she said, no, sir. That's it. That's all she said. As the drugs took effect, she began to snore, which became less and less audible, and then eventually stopped. She was pronounced dead at 6.26 p.m. Central Standard Time, 11 minutes after the drug was administered. And I personally can't help but wonder what time her daughter popped that champagne. As I read the story, and as I read what happened to Buddy, my heart literally broke into a million pieces. We now know that... You know, there are people out there who will do anything for money. This, however, is the lowest of low, the gunk at the bottom of a garbage can. If Buddy can come back as a ghost, I hope he haunts the hell out of them. But he's probably too nice to do even that. At the very least, I hope that the rest of them are all suffering like hell in jail. That's all for this episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you. Be sure to check out the beachhouse34.com website. It has details and all of the sources for this story. And uh, so does the Beach House 34 Instagram page, which you can find at Beach House 34 Podcast. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.